0: This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. More than a week after the 2020 election, it's fair to ask, what just happened? The results point to some deep divisions within both parties, and deep divisions in many states, including Connecticut. We saw historic voter turnout, aided by special pandemic rules that made mail-in voting a reality for the first time here. But we still saw long lines at polling sites and, in some states, new restrictions on the number of polling places. We've heard calls for unity this past week, both across the political divide and also within political parties, while others are still pointing fingers of blame for unexpected losses. And we've seen shifts to Connecticut's political map, with former Republican strongholds turning blue and pockets of red creating new challenges for Democrats. In this post-election special called What Just Happened, which was recorded this last Tuesday on Zoom, I talked about all these issues in front of a live audience with Leah Wright Reguer, the Harry Truman professor at Brandeis University and author of The Loneliness of the Black Republican, and Susan Bigelow, award-winning columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Welcome to Steady Habits, thanks for joining me. Good to be here.
1: Always a pleasure
2: and great to be here.
0: As we think about this election, something we've all been consumed by now for a number of years, since about, I don't know, January of 2017, what is the thing that is foremost in your mind as you try to process what just happened?
2: The big thing on my mind is that for a lot of people going into this race, even though the polls said predicted a Joe Biden victory, there was still a sense or, you know, whether you want to call it your gut, whether you want to call it, you know, a disregard for the polls or a mistrust or skepticism of the polls, that somehow Donald Trump was going to pull this out right there was a lot of you know talk and sentiment around that and I think part of it is the reality that it is very very hard to dislodge an incumbent or sitting president Um, but there are some other aspects too and so I think you know one of the things was a sense of shock um, you know on uh, election eve as it became increasingly clear that Joe Biden might win this one and then the next day and the following day and the following day as it became clear that Joe Biden not only had had won the race, but had won the race by a pretty good margin, such that the current president who is calling for you know, recounts and saying that voter fraud happened, that even if all of those things are true or those recounts happen, that it's still not within the margin of what would allow him to you know, claim victory. So that's a really big one. The second one, uh, second finding is that you know, when you provide access to democracy, people will vote. Hmm. So the actual number of people who came out to vote in this election, right? Surpassing all of these elections, recent all elections in recent history, something close to 150 million people voting, that is remarkable. And I'm, I'm you know, deeply disappointed that it took a pandemic, a global pandemic for us to actually expand franchise and the enfranchisement of people in this country. But even though it took a pandemic, People did it, and it was remarkable, right? The mail-in ballots, early ballots, even uh, you know Connecticut, which is one of twelve states that does not have early voting, mm. found a way to make absentee ballot e- absentee ballot voting easy for people who didn't want to come out or didn't trust coming out. You know, I myself voted by absentee ballot um, because I wanted to, <laughs> and that was actually nice. You know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got 75 million votes, 75 million votes, and they're on track to get even more than that. Right. As we finish counting these ballots. But it's also, I think, apparent that it's you know, there was a huge turnout for Donald Trump. 70 million, I think, right now um, and counting, which says something about the nature of where we are in this country and how deeply, deeply divided we are in this country. Um, we're deeply polarized, we're partisan. Um, and so, you know, I know at some point we're going to talk about these calls for unity. But I really wonder how far unity can go and these even calls for unity can go when you have something like that kind of split. And then the last point is, you know, we have a sitting president who rece- who refuses to concede. Now, concession is a tradition. It's a ritual. It's something polite and civil that you do as, you know, as the president who has lost or, right, or as the, the challenger who has lost. We haven't been faced in modern times with a sitting president who refuses to accept the election results. We've had, you know, close contests. We had Bush v. Gore. But never, right, have I seen this or have I, you know, even gone through documents that that speak to the current moment that we're in. That is something that's heavy on my mind, too, as we, we talk about, you know, what just happened.
1: For me, I think it's both the endurance of and also the fragility of our democratic institutions. It's great to see our democracy being so robust and being so resilient in a lot of ways, um, especially when we're talking about you know, possible attempts at voter intimidation, making some states making it really hard for people to actually count the ballots, messing around with early voting, having only one polling place per county of 3 million people, things like that. Um, So, but people did come out and people did vote anyway. The turnout was extremely inspiring. I mean, over a million people in Connecticut voted for Joe Biden. That's never happened before a million people voting for a single candidate. That's a third of the state. That's incredible. An 80% turnout in Connecticut. That it it hasn't happened in my lifetime. Um and it it is remarkable. But of course, our democratic institutions are only as strong as the people who are there. And you know, a lot we've already covered a lot of this ground, but this is so so uppermost in my mind is the difficulties of a president who doesn't allow uh, transition to begin, uh who looks like he's trying to put people who are pretty partisan in in different roles throughout the government. Just what's what's the next four years going to look like if we have an entire party who is actively saying that the president is illegitimate, even though he legitimately won the election and then there's, there's no reason to say that this is an illegitimate election. That's There's no no evidence of voter fraud at all. There's no evidence that this was, this was a crooked election in any kind of way, this was a very above board. Um, but what's it gonna look like for the next four years with people trying, with the Republican party and I'm, I'm quite sure they're going to do this at every turn, bringing up the fact that this is possibly, to them anyway, an, Ill- an illegitimate president. Uh, what's that going to look like? Uh, constitutionally, what's that going to be like? Are they going to approve any of his cabinet appointees if they keep the Senate Republicans? Hmm. Are they going to seat any judges? Or what's, what's this going to be? So that's, that's, that's my anxiety. Certainly, as that's just part of our national emotional roller coaster ride, I think, as well. I have been thinking about sort of the the emotional exhaustedness of the nation. <laughs> um, I think no matter what side you're on, the last, you know, the last couple of weeks have been absolutely mentally draining.
0: And, and honestly, yeah. I think that, that that feeling, that roller coaster is is the one that a lot of people are on. And, y- you know, we wouldn't necessarily expect Donald Trump to have done anything else. I mean, if he would have literally lost all 50 states legitimately, it's pretty fair to say he'd still be doing the same thing. There wouldn't be any different message, so I don't think that we should take anything from that. One one point that you both made that I wanted to hear a little bit more from you on, Susan, this idea, and we're going to talk about it in Connecticut, about expanding access to voting, but I think you can read these long lines of people standing in early voting states, the the huge numbers of turnouts in, in a couple of different ways. One is... This is inspiring. It's amazing if you give people the franchise and expand it to to make it more available to them. People really will take part. The other way to look at it is, I see those people standing in long lines and think, "How on in God's name did we end up with a system in which people have to stand four hours to vote?" And, and I don't know, Susan, that if we're if in some ways we're taking this inspirational view of this and we're we're missing something vital which is it should never ever happen like this again we should never ever have people standing in line for four hours
1: yeah i mean i'm reminded of those inspirational stories we hear uh on tv or wherever sometimes about somebody has a a, a real medical problem and they can't pay for it so i don't know their fifth grade class raises all this money for them and they're able to do it that's inspiring good for them but this should never be like this Nobody should ever have to break the bank to actually get health care, for goodness sake. Um, and th- that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's good to see people engaging in the democratic process, but it's so much easier in other countries to vote. Talk to people internationally, talk to my friends overseas. It's It's so easy for them to access the polls. It's not this sort of thicket of obstacles that you have to kind of get through. We need to learn from this. We need to learn that we need to make it more accessible uh, and I hope that we actually do.
0: And Leah, you mentioned this before, You know, Connecticut, maybe we can get to this a little bit. I talked with Matt Ritter, the incoming Speaker of the House, and the Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill. They both say this upcoming session, they really want to make sure that we all got a chance to vote on the fact that we can have early voting here in the state. That's just one step. We're way far behind. What do you think we need to do as a society to make it so that we're actually doing this in the way that gives people the chance to vote and feel as though not only does their vote count, but they're doing it in a way that that doesn't come with all the stress and anxiety?
2: Well, I think certainly one of the first things that we need to do is repair the harm that was done with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act a few years ago. And so there have been a number of congressional figures um, and people in the House and in the Senate who have called for a new Voting Rights Act. But I think one of the things that we can look at, and particularly when we look at the overarching um, uh, legislation that went into the original Voting Rights Act from 1965. One of the things that we learned, uh, we learned is that there was an original version of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, that was far more comprehensive and applied to not just trouble states, but all 50 states that was designed to in- expand the franchise. And so of course there was bickering within con- Congress. And so they whittled it down to a weaker version, which actually was pretty strong, but that applied to, you know again, the problem states that has been since been gutted. And I think this is an opportunity, this presents an opportunity for us to really revisit a new voting rights act whether it be through you know congress or through something perhaps at the executive level on a state by state level i think one of the things that we have to do is consider you know a lot of the talk has been around states that are bad or have really bad practices. We can all think of Georgia, for example, and those you know lines. I have a friend who said, "I'm bringing food, I brought music, and I brought my folding chair." You shouldn't have to do that. And so there are some simple things that we've seen other states doing, like same day voter registration or automatic registration upon the time that you turn, uh, you know, turn 18. We also know that there are things like in other countries. Um, you know, at one point Brazil would provide people with transportation to get to the polls, or would allow people to, you know, a pollster to come and say, "Well, we'll collect your ballot." Right? Things that make it easy. But I also think, again, you know, this is my big push in the state of Connecticut, which is considered a progressive, you know, state that is at the forefront of voting and democratic policies. That it is absolutely ridiculous that we don't have, you know, something like early voting. And I know that there's there was a vote last year, that there's some contention, there's a pushback. Um, and that part of what we were gonna have to do is fight this idea that is rooted in this pushback, that the reason we can't have these things is because of so-called fraud. So I think part of what we have to do is find the kind of last holdouts and really you know put together a case that suggests that fraud doesn't exist and then push even harder in order to make sure that we have um, easy access to voting, that voting is easy, it's effortless, and it's something that you can just do and that everyone participates in.
0: At this moment in America, can we enter into some time of, of unity, some time of healing? And what I've found, and I'll start with you, Leah, over the course of the last week that's been, I guess, kind of shocking to me, is how much infighting within the Democratic Party at the state, the local, the national level there is, over the future of this party so many people after an election in which they have a candidate who has unseated a sitting president are incredibly unhappy and stressed out about the current and future of the democratic party so i guess i'm wondering what you see in all that about this the calls for unity this clear disunity that we have a division a schism between progressives and moderates amongst Democrats.
2: Sure. So I think the first big thing is that in order for us to even really contemplate the idea of unity, the sitting president would need to concede, right? So we're talking about, you know, this kind of bipartisan reaching across the aisle idea of unity and healing. You can't do that while one person is suggesting that the results of the election are illegitimate. So that's that's kind of that. But in terms of you know, internal politics, you know. Part of what, what makes this so intriguing, but part of what makes it so difficult is that in anywhere else in the world, the Democratic Party would be five different parties, right? three different parties. It's only by virtue of the fact that we have this bizarre two-party system wherein a third, third party, at least on the, the national level, are largely you know, incompatible with victory or winning. And we have these, this, these two major political parties that control most of the money, the organization, right, the infrastructure that forces these things together. And in fact, you know, when the founders are talking about the two American two-party system more broadly, they're thinking that the the idea of the two-party system when it functions correctly is to force out the fringes. Right? So the ideas that are at the edges or at the margins and force compromise compromise. We are now past the point of compromise. And I think one of the things that you're seeing is all of that playing out. What I do think, however, is that it's really important to have this debate and it's really important to have this fight because it will determine the future of the Democratic Party in this this country. And right now, one of the things that we can point to is that particularly amongst the younger generation of politicians, organizers, activists, Democrats, that they are trending left. So that's really important as we think about, what are the kinds of things that we can, you know, that that can get pushed forward as part of a Biden-Harris agenda. And I think if we're thinking about unity and we're thinking about, you know, what is the best way to kind of bridge the friction and the tension of the un- unraveling, essentially democratic coalition, right? New Deal coalitions that have persisted over the last, you know, 70 some odd years. And one of the the big things to do is to coalesce around ideas that are uniformly popular. So criminal justice reform, right? Mass incarceration and, you know, sentencing and things like that. Uh, Energy, jobs. Covid nineteen and the coronavirus, right? These are areas where you can get wins and where you can see um, significant unity. But I also think it's going to be necessary for you know a Biden-Harris administration, particularly one that is is largely a centrist, you know, center-left uh, administration, to offer some some uh, you know, essentially some policies, some programs, something that speaks to the progressive left because it. They are, by and large, the reason why Biden and Harris are in office, you know, today or will be in January.
0: But that's what's so interesting, Susan, is is while that is undeniably true, that is a large reason why Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have won the election. A lot of moderates say that's exactly what cost us all those House seats. If if we weren't talking yeah. about the Green New Deal, you know, we would have we would have gotten all sorts of uh, suburban voters from all over the country and. And I don't know that that necessarily washes, but that's certainly where an awful lot of the moderate wing of the party is right now.
1: Right, and again, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily true either. I think it'd be difficult. You know, the complaint from the left is that the party should have run more candidates who were, who are were clear about change and clear about wanting uh, these big ideas like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, that kind of thing, even in places where, um, where the electorate is more conservative and the moderates pushing back say you know if we weren't doing that then we would have appealed to to more people and it's it's really difficult to figure out which which one is actually true because every election is going to be run on some local issues as well Uh, every election is going to be different there's going to be different situations on the ground and again you had this big surge of Trump voters so it really shouldn't be all that much of a surprise that especially in places where uh, Trump did very well that you're gonna lose some house seats because you have this big surge of voters. Texas, for example, it's not not a huge surprise. Um, I'm not really surprised that there's infighting in the Democratic Party, uh, just because it's the Democratic Party. That doesn't surprise me one bit because that seems like the normal kind of standard procedure for Democrats, that even though there might be some, there might be big victories, the habit of anxiety, I think, is so ingrained in democratic politics at this point that even something that really is and should be considered a pretty big win has caused so much anxiety. Democrats thinking, well, this should have been bigger. Uh, We should have gotten more house seats. We didn't get the Senate. Um, Whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? How can we not do this next time? So that anxiety, it's, it's so hard for Democrats to step out of that space and try to keep that coalition together instead of just pointing fingers, which is what they're kind of doing now.
0: Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com and Leah wright from Brandeis University. They'll be right back in a second. I want to tell you about the Connecticut Mirror and their important annual fundraising effort called Newsmatch. Thanks to a national grassroots fundraising campaign, every qualifying contribution you make between now and the end of the year is going to be matched dollar for dollar. It's up to $5,000. They'll also be matching the annual value of monthly contributions. That means if you commit to say fifteen dollars for a monthly contribution, the Connecticut Mirror will get one hundred eighty matching dollars. There isn't a better time than right now to join in the work of the Connecticut Mirror. So you can go to ctmirror.org/donate. Hope you can join us. Now back to our conversation with Leah wright Rigur and Susan Bigelow from this past Tuesday's special. What just happened? Election event. One of the things that's happened this past week that I wanted to ask Lee about is the disturbing trend of criticism of mostly black men for voting for Donald Trump, not in large numbers, but in slightly larger numbers than in 2016. A lot of the people who are making this argument are overlooking the fact that white Americans, both men and women, voted for Donald Trump in larger numbers than in 2016, too. I, I asked Lee about this.
2: One thing I'll I'll push back gently just to say that I think one of the narratives that emerged after the election, after last week's election, is that, you know, applause for the role that black women played in the, the broader electoral sphere. Right. And I think that has largely been a narrative that's been driven both by the successes of Stacey Abrams, but also the elevation of Kamala Harris to vice president of the United States. So I think there's been a lot of attention on that, yes. um, which has largely kind of erased some of the scapegoating that has happened with, you know, this this very small percentage of largely black men who you know, voted for Donald Trump the second time around but i think one of the things that it ignores and overlooks was particularly as we look at these like you know black trump voters is that their numbers aren't actually that different from you know Black men who have supported the Republican Party in the past. So this is what I mean when I say that Donald Trump isn't necessarily exceptional. Instead, I think what we saw with Black men voting for, you know, say voting for Trump in these, again, small numbers, is a return home for Black men who had always been voting for Republicans in these small numbers, with the exception of the Obama years, where almost all of them moved into the Obama camp. So we're—it's a return essentially to the fact that there's not a black man on the ticket. So that's what we're talking about. Um, I also think that the the you know in the idea of scapegoating this very very small group is an important way for distracting from the very fraught politics um, and the very nuanced politics that's going on with white America, right? In the divisions between say like white women from rural areas, white women without college educations, white women with advanced degrees who vote very differently from these other groups. And I think part of, you know, when we do that, we actually miss something really interesting. And one of the interesting things for me that we miss is that white men with college educations, with college education actually broke for Joe Biden at higher numbers than they had for Democratic uh, uh, candidates in the past. So that set, tells me that something is changing, something is shifting that is important to pay attention to. But because we kind of moved the discussion onto, you know, what this small group did, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to pinpoint that. It allows us to avoid having the conversation about all of that other stuff.
0: Now, one thing I wanted to get to with you, Susan, is the the Trump effect here in Connecticut, and it helped Democrats clearly gain seats in the state legislature.
1: It did. And I took a look at the uh, sort of the voting patterns in Connecticut and you know, you see two major things, and I've got an article about this out today at ctnewsjunkie.com. Um, two major sort of things happening in Connecticut. One of them is Fairfield County, so it's sort of the historic home of the Republican Party in Connecticut. What used to be a sort of moderate, uh, fiscally conservative, socially fairly moderate uh, to liberal party, that is almost completely, uh, completely blue now. It's a deeply Democratic space. And that's uh, not just voting for president anymore, but they are now sending democratic representatives and state senators from places like Greenwich uh, and Richfield and you know Roxbury, uh, all these these towns which have been very Republican uh, only 10 years ago. Uh, like how could you imagine that a town like Darien uh, with a very, very wealthy suburb, uh, which has a reputation for being very conservative would vote for Joe Biden, but they sure did, and they, they did by a pretty large margin. So that's that's one thing that's happening, um, that shift from away from the Republican Party in southwestern Connecticut. The other thing that's happening is a shift towards Republicans in the eastern part of the state, the sort of rural, very white, uh, not as economically well-off uh, part of the state, which had historically actually supported Democrats' You know, not overwhelmingly, but there had been, you know, a decent support for, for Obama. There had been support. Um, now that part of the state is trending much, much more Republican. And we actually saw is this wasn't just a Democratic wash. De- uh, Republicans actually did pick up a couple of seats in the legislature. They flipped a couple of seats here and there in a year that was historically very bad for Republicans elsewhere in the state. And I think you can say, well, this is this actually mirrors national trends where, you um, more highly educated, wealthier white people, for the most part, are shifting towards the Democratic Party, whereas um, poorer, more rural white people are shifting away from it. And we're seeing that dynamic kind of play out here in Connecticut. And I expect that dynamic to continue to shape the legislative races over the next, next couple of years. But that's, that's the big thing that I see here.
0: You, you watch these legislative races very closely, Susan. Was there anything that was a, a big surprise to you in, in any of the results?
1: Honestly, no. Um, none of the races that flipped were all that surprising. Um, they were either in locations that had, had been trending one way or another, uh, open seats flipping. Um, that's not unusual. Uh, the district of the outgoing speaker of the House, Joe Arasimowitz, actually flipped to Republican. Um, that's the only. That's I think the only seat outside of Eastern Connecticut that flipped Republican. But also the the seat of the outgoing minority leader of the House, then is clarity is also flipped democratic. Um, so that's pretty interesting what happens when longtime incumbents leave and there's an open seat race and sometimes you see those you see those flips. But again, not terribly surprising that Berlin Southington area has become more Republican over time and Woodbridge and the New Haven area is pretty democratic. So not too surprising A lot of stuff seems to be lining up with uh, geographic and and demographic trends right now.
0: One of the things, Leah, that's interesting in talking about state politics is that the Democratic Party, which, of course, as we know, it controls both houses of the legislature, the governor's a Democrat, all the statewide elected officers are Democrats, all the congressional uh, seats are held by Democrats. It's it's a one-party state for the most part, but that in part has to do with the fact that the Democrats who run for a state House seat can essentially run as the same Democratic Party that has Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket, whereas people who are running on the Republican side kind of have to choose. Am I going to run standing next to Donald Trump or am I going to run basically as an entirely different sort of animal someone who is a Connecticut Republican who doesn't believe in most of the things that Donald Trump has. And that that is a long-term problem, I think, Leah, for the Republican Party in the state.
2: Yeah, and I'd be interested in hearing Suzanne's, you know, Trending um, information about this as well, but one of the things that strikes me is that you know in Connecticut politics, particularly because there's such a it's such a democratic stronghold, that the politics end up breaking down within the Democratic Party, where you have these different wings of the party, and that's what comes out to play. Um, but then also, what ends up happening is that somebody you know the other day I was asked you know what would a Republican need to do in order for there to be you know a Republican wave in the in the state of Connecticut? And I said you'd have to run as essentially an independent Republican, a different kind of Republican, a Trump Republican is not, is not going to pay, play well. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that Republicans have to really think about, particularly, you know, in 2016, many Republicans in Connecticut said, you know, nope, we're not that kind of Republican, we're not Trump Republicans. A lot of them made a very different decision, and it cost them in you know in 2020, and so I, I would think that the the approach for any Republican that wants to win, particularly in these Democratic strongholds, is to set, identify yourself as an independent, different
1: kind of Republican.
0: Mm. Susan?
1: but unfortunately for for independent kinds of Republicans, it's really hard for them to win primaries. Yeah, uh, because the party's activist base does not want that kind of Republican winning, and I think we uh, can look at the. Uh, at the state Republican party itself, uh, led by J.R. Romanos, the outgoing uh, chairman, and the sort of email blasts he'll send his supporters are very Trumpy in a lot of ways uh, as a fundraising tool. And clearly that that works for them to make money. It doesn't work to get Republicans elected, but right. is that is that the point even? I mean, is the point to get Republicans elected or is the point to, to run party candidates who the base approves of? At this point, it's hard to tell. It's certainly, They haven't had a lot of success in running candidates. Just imagining how differently things would have gone if a moderate Republican had run for for governor in the last election or even the two elections before that. Like a Jody Rell kind of figure who won overwhelmingly in 2006, even during a highly Democratic year. Um, If a moderate Republican who was likable and acceptable to suburbanites actually did did run the things would be a lot different and they might actually have a Republican governor, but that's not what the party activists want. So again, they think, I think that Republicans know kind of that they need to be more moderate and they need to step away from Trump, but it's really hard to do because the activist base won't let them. I,
0: I, a last thing for, for you, Leah, and this is something that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about. We started by talking about the possibility of moving toward more early voting in states like Connecticut hopefully over time uh, these are maybe all positive steps but I, I had kind of a I guess a negative experience at the polls myself I I decided my wife and I decided we were going to go vote in person because we felt like we felt like you know we wanted to see what it was like and when to stand in the rain and the cold and we stood in a pretty long line I'll tell you we, we'd never had to wait in line in Winstead Connecticut and we stood for about 40 minutes and I was standing next to a young man who was telling me he just moved from another town and he wasn't even sure that he was registered to vote in this town, but he really wanted to vote. And um, we talked for a while and, and he said to me, you know, I really wanted to come vote in person because I kept seeing on Facebook that I wasn't sure that my vote, if I put it in the mail, was actually going to count. I-, I wasn't sure that mail-in ballots were actually legal. Um, because of some things I saw on Facebook, and it just it kind of sent a shiver down my spine. Because obviously we've seen this in huge numbers; millions of votes have been influenced by Russian interference or interference by domestic agents. Let's just say. But I fear that that's one of the things that we need to grapple with post this election more than anything else. Is that we just aren't we aren't telling each other the truth about what's happening in the world and that's really affecting an awful lot of people's ability to go cast their vote fairly
2: so you know one of the things that i said after the 2016 election is that we've entered post-fact america <laughs> and i think that's still true and i think you know one of the things that came out through when many of these congressional hearings on say whether it be russian interference or you know electoral competence and things like that over the past four years has been that we are woefully underprepared as a democratic nation, right, a nation in which, you know, the vote is enshrined in the Constitution, we are woefully underprepared to defend that right to vote. And then in fact, it's the people who are most marginalized, who are most kind of ostracized, who are pushed out of the political process and have been denied the political process, who have been most valiant about defending that right to vote and advancing democracy. So I think one of the things that we have to do is really grapple with how as a nation we just aren't civically educated, right? We don't know a lot, and I'm, I'm thinking about Massachusetts, which abandoned right uh, political education as part of you know graduation and just reinstituted it because teachers were like, actually, no, this is a real crisis, <laughs> um, and we need some kind of public civic education uh, about you know how the political process works what your rights are, what you were entitled to. And then I think we also need some way of measuring social media. We imagine social media as this democratizing tool. Um, Social media mavens uh, imagine it as something that is ostensibly neutral. But in fact, it's something that has the power to restrict and constrict democracy, right? It can be used for a variety of purposes. And I think it's important that we actually get a handle on that. And we are nowhere close to even scratching the surface of the power of these kind of social media instruments for democracy or against democracy.
0: Leah wright rigger is Harry Truman professor at Brandeis University. She's also author of The Loneliness of the Black Republican Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. You can see her all over cable television, sitting in that very cool wingback chair that she's in right now. Leah wright rigger always great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: Susan Bigelow is an award-winning columnist for the ctnewsjunkie.com site. And if you go to the site right now, you can see a really great analysis of this past election in uh, Connecticut. She she gets these local uh, races really right. Susan, it's always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for speaking with us again tonight. It's great me. to see you. If you want to be part of special events like what just happened in the future, you can go to our website, ctmirror.org, and sign up for our newsletter. The newsletter lets you know about all these events in advance, so hopefully you can join us live next time. Special thanks to Kyle Constable, Bruce Potterman, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianus and Dave Swanson provided our steady beats, and they were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me here on Steady Habits, and we'll talk to you soon.